Today we are wrapping up uh, this series titled Selfless, where we've been shifting our focus from ourselves uh, to intentionally living more selfless lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I want to start by reading a story from Scripture. You just sit back and listen um, to this, and uh, this will launch us and kind of bridge the gap from last week to this week. One time, when Jesus was off praying by himself, he asked his disciples, what are the crowds saying about me? Who am I? They answered, some say you're John the baptizer. Others say Elijah. Still others say that one of the prophets from long ago has come back. But then he asked them, and what about you? What are you saying about me? Who am I to you? Peter answered, you are the Messiah of God. Jesus then warned them to keep it quiet. They were to tell no one what Peter had just said. He went on, telling them it is necessary that the Son of Man proceed to an ordeal of great suffering, to be tried and found guilty by the religious leaders, the high priests, the religious scholars, and be killed, and on the third day be raised up alive. Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that last few verses there were basically our text for last week in Luke chapter 9. That was the message translation. It's a modern paraphrase uh, that puts some of the same ideas in a very different language, more of a narrative form. And I love the way that Jesus says that that this translation captures the essence. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way to finding yourself, your true Self. And that's what we've been after. We've been talking about intentionally surrendering our lives to live a life of love and sacrifice for God and for others. So today we're talking about sort of the capstone of this series, a self-sacrificing surrender. We started way back six weeks ago with this idea of living in a self-centered society. We've talked about Uh, self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, those three sort of describing the ego and the false self, the the flesh, the sin nature, and what it tries to bring about. These last couple of weeks and today, we're looking more at what the Spirit leads us to. Instead of what the ego or the false self or the flesh leads us to the first three weeks, now we're looking at self-awareness. And we talked last week about living selfless lives, less selfish, less focused on ourselves, more focused on Christ and on the Holy Spirit. And today we're talking about a self-sacrificing surrender. And I don't want to understate the importance of this concept. I, Pastor Zach alluded to it. This has been a day, one of those days where you look at your watch over and over and you say, how can it possibly be that time? We walked in this morning just like we normally do no central projection. We had no projector whatsoever. So we're on the phone, tech support, got that back up. Some piece of equipment had just magically stopped working all of a sudden. We've had the, the projector resetting on a regular basis. It made it through worship. Praise the Lord. We prayed that it would. Uh, we've had internet troubles. The phones went completely down, so we couldn't even call about the internet troubles unless we used our cell phone. But the cell phone was being used to 
provide a Wi-Fi hotspot for the check-in station, so that got pretty dicey for a while. We've had audio issues. It's been one thing after another, and each time I have said, God, you must be on to something because Satan is pulling out all the stops to make sure that this doesn't happen, and just like Pastor Zach said, here we are. We made it, and whatever else happens, even if i got to scream at the top of my lungs to a dark room, we are going to get through this service and through this content because it's too important, so thank you. And I know I've talked many times about a devotional that I read called New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp. I've given that as a gift to a number of people. I know other people in this congregation have given that as a gift, so we might have to stop doing that because it's going to reach a saturation point. Um, But I couldn't help but smile when I read today's. It fits so perfectly. It's exactly what we've been talking about. And he said, It is dangerous to live without your heart being captured by awe of God because awe of God is quickly replaced by awe of you. When we take our eyes off of God, they naturally seem to settle on ourselves. And it's really important. This is a big deal. And it's not a big deal because Linwood is full of egomaniacs. But I am aware that I am and we are far from perfect. I think we're better than many churches. But I know that we're not better than every church. And that we have room to grow in this area. And as I closed the message last week, I mentioned we're not really ever neutral. We're either moving closer to God and to his will for our life with the decisions that we're making, or we are moving farther away with the decisions we're making. It's like we're in a stream with a current. And so you're either moving in one direction or the other, but seldom static. And so every time that one of us makes a selfless act or a selfless decision, That's a step in the right direction, and the kingdom expands through that step. But every time we make a selfish act or a selfish decision, the darkness grows. And so every time I receive a critical or unkind email or every time a staff member or a ministry leader gets chewed out by a regular attender for a harmless mistake, it shows that this is still an issue. We still have sin within us. We still have a battle to fight, and it requires us to fight. The enemy does not take any days off. And we have to be intentional. We have to be focused. And I know it's an issue because not just that it happens, but what wells up within me when I see it happen reminds me that I still have an ego that gets upset and gets frustrated. And I have to fight back my natural reaction. And I have to edit my response, sometimes on the fly, to make sure that I don't give the enemy ground in my response. And so I say that just to encourage you and to spur you on, but I also want to remind you that you have to walk through these doors motivated to inspect your life and ask God to show you anything that doesn't line up with his will and be willing to make the change. I came across a little line in a book and uh, had a great conversation with a really good friend about this line. But the line was from Edwin Freeman. He says, we must shatter the illusion that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. That should have been the first lesson in every class I took in seminary. Because we get these ideas, if I just say it right, if I just provide the right insight, if I just find the right insights from Scripture, everyone will be motivated to make the change. And the reality is that unless you walk through those doors motivated to inspect your life and be different tomorrow because you came to church today, it doesn't matter what I say. And it's not just here at Linwood. It's every time you open God's Word 
whether or not you open it all. But every time you open it, are you motivated to be different as a result of the encounter that you have with God's Word? And if you're not, then the insight isn't going to provide real change. And so I want to encourage you to create a posture and to ask God to give you a posture of openness that says, God, show me what needs to change in my life so that I can be different, so that when insight comes, I'll apply the insight to my life and become more like Jesus every time new awareness or new insight or new information comes that helps me. Because insight works really, really well for people who are motivated to change, but it doesn't work at all for people who aren't. And I think Jesus understood this. I think he understood it really, really well. And the scripture that we're going to look at today is evidence of this. And I picked this and wrote this whole outline on Monday, and then I read that and had that conversation on Tuesday. So it was one of those little synergies of the truth that the Holy Spirit connected some dots in my mind, and we were on the same page. Because I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, and it's verses 24 through 27. This is the last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to turn to that and you need a Bible, we've got blue hardcover Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can go to page 1506. Or I'll give you a minute if you'd rather follow along on a phone or an iPad or you bring a Bible in with you uh, to turn to that. We'll study this passage for a few minutes and then we'll look at another passage of Scripture. But just to remind you, this Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, we're told, went up onto a hillside. His disciples came to them. He began to teach them, saying, and then it says all these things. And you can read it in about 17, 18 minutes. But most scholars agree these, this was like... This was a whole sermon series. This was like when he would go to a town and he would set up shop and he would begin teaching maybe for several days as we have accounts in Scripture where they were had been going for hours and hours and hours. These were the things that he was teaching, and he wasn't just reading the Sermon on the Mount to him. He was expanding and giving examples and bringing in parables and telling stories to illustrate these points. And he gets to the end of this package of essential teachings of Christ, and he says in verse 24, Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus knew that some in his audience were not motivated to change. They were not motivated to be different because of what they had heard, and he knew that some were, and he differentiates between them. And so when he says in verse 24, Anyone who hears these words of mine, I believe he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. I think he's talking about his ministry as a whole. He is talking about these things that I have said to you, these essential teachings. If you hear them, if you hear what I have said about the Beatitudes and who is really blessed and that you are salt and light, and as I have broken the difference between inner righteousness and outward righteousness and talked about generosity and prayer and discipline and do not worry and do not judge and talked about the wide gate that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to heaven, and I've talked about trees and their fruit, all of that, if you hear this and you choose to be different, 
If you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, that's the next phrase. That means to follow these statements, to have the same mind and the same purpose of the person who said them, so to adopt the nature and the character of Christ, to follow his ways, to follow his teaching. Both the letter and the spirit. So we don't, you know, we don't split hairs like the Pharisees were really good at doing. We can extrapolate and learn that if he said don't do this, he probably means don't do that too. And we follow. We put these teachings into practice. We're told he is like a man who built his house on the rock. You see, Jesus is the solid rock. And when you build your life on the solid rock, it will not be shaken. That's the point that he's making. But verse 26 talks about another way. That when we don't listen, when we don't put the words into practice. You see, the people in verse 25, or sorry, verse 26, they heard, but they didn't put into practice. They maybe came to church weekly. For decades. But if they never put it into practice, then they're like a foolish man who builds on the sand. And the sand, the sand is our self. It is ourselves. That's the sand. That's our self centeredness, our self righteousness, our self sufficiency. It's our self direction and our, our need to be in control of our life. That's the sand. That's the sand of self that we build our lives upon as we sin, as we miss the mark, as we have misunderstandings and miscommunications and misapplications. All of that is our self. It's, it's the self that comes between us and Christ. And so in verse 27, when it says the rain come, the rain is coming. It will come to each and every one of us. One way of life that is built entirely on Christ, not just close to Christ, but centered on Christ, will stand. And one way of life will fall. And so the question is, which life are you living What is your life built upon? Because the life built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ will stand. And the life built on anything else, anything else, will fall. And when the rain comes, there will be no faking it. See, you can fake it. And the Pharisees knew they were faking it. They were convincing a lot of people that they were the ones that were in with God. And Jesus turns the whole thing on their head. And he doesn't say, blessed are the Pharisees, because they've got everybody but God convinced. He says just the opposite many times in his ministry. It is those who are built, have built their lives entirely on the solid rock of Jesus Christ that will stand. The storms will reveal. And so our bottom line today, I'm going to give it to you early and we're going to, we're going to use it to bridge from this passage to another passage that Jesus said. But the bottom line today is that there is a big, big difference between calculated sacrifice and total surrender. There's a big, big difference between I'll give this much, but not this much. There's a big, big difference between I'll go there, but I won't go there. Calculated sacrifice and total surrender that says, it's all yours, God. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, whatever you need from me, my life is in your hands. It doesn't belong to me anymore. I give it completely over to you. Because just like we we said in, in the Matthew passage, Jesus is that rock, that cornerstone that we must build our lives upon, but you can't add a cornerstone to a building after it's built. Have you ever noticed that? You can't do it. 
And so if you have a building without a a cornerstone, you don't add a cornerstone later, you build a new building on the cornerstone. If the cornerstone's not right, nothing's going to be right. If the cornerstone's not plumb and level, it doesn't matter. When I was in Peru, I was uh, doing a mission trip there, and between two pastor's conferences, we had three days, and we got to go to Cusco. And there's a place in Cusco where there's a stone that's cut in 17 different corners, different angles. Maybe you've heard of this. And they said that stone was the heart of the Peruvian empire and that the whole thing was held together by this stone with these different angles. I looked for a picture, but I couldn't find it. But the idea was that if that stone had been moved or altered, that the whole thing would have been off. And Jesus is that stone for us and for our lives. He said, I am the chief cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. You can't add that to the building after it's built. We need to build a whole new life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ with his words and his ways, his teachings, as the cornerstone. Now, this reminded me of my first week here at Linwood back on February 25th, 2018. Actually, it was February 11th when I candidated. That's what I was thinking of. I showed this picture of some different types of coffee. And I asked you, which one is your favorite type of coffee? And, and then I made the point that if we approach Jesus as the cream or sugar that we add to our coffee, as that which we add to our life to make it a little sweeter, to make it a little richer, then we are missing the point. The point is not to add a little bit of Jesus to your life. It's to dump the old out shatter the mug, and say, let me build a new life entirely on Jesus Christ. The secondary message, of course, is that those who drink black coffee are the only really spiritual people like myself. (laughs) We don't just need a little more Jesus in our life. We can't add enough Jesus to diminish ourselves. We have to get rid of ourselves through an act of total surrender. And Paul David Tripp, again, I had this quote in there from the beginning. This quote from Paul David Tripp came earlier this year, but he says it this way. He says, grace doesn't free us to live for us. The purpose of God's grace is not to make your little kingdom of one work better. I hate that. I wish that it was. The purpose of God's grace is to free you from your slavery to you so that you can live for a much, much better Kingdom, that's what Jesus is saying here. And he said it this way in John 12. If you want to flip over to John 12, page 1672. This is in the final week of Jesus' life. And he says these words. He tells them it's about time for the Son of Man to be glorified. In verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And when Jesus says this, it's important that we understand this was the big revelation for me. When Jesus says this, he's not just predicting his own death. He's predicting the death of every single one of his followers. That there will be a death to self that will precede truly following Jesus. The self, the ego, the flesh, 
It has to die. It has to die completely. It has to die repeatedly. I love that he used the analogy of a grain of wheat. How often does a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die? It happens seasonally. It happens cyclically. There are seasons of life. There's a season when we first come to Christ where we fall to the earth and die that he might live within us. And then We get to do it again, and new parts of us need to be surrendered to Christ as he makes us aware of them. And so it's just like, it's just like the wheat. It's just like seeds. And he won't take it from us by force. He won't demand it from us. He won't steal it from us when we're not looking. But he invites us to sacrifice ourselves repeatedly. That's why our bottom line, there's a big difference between calculated sacrifice and total surrender. We maintain a posture of total surrender, and as soon as something comes into our awareness that is not meshing up with God, we surrender that too. And as soon as anything appears to us, shows up on the radar screen, we sacrifice that as well. And so, (laughs) this is my biggest enemy to my spiritual growth is me. It's not my circumstances. It's not difficult people. It's not the political climate. It's not the weather. It's not any of those things. It's me. It's myself. It keeps coming back. It's my, myself, my ego, my sinful desires, and my pride. And I would dare you to write that out and think that thought yourself. To realize... And be able to say, my biggest obstacle, the biggest enemy to my spiritual growth is me. I'm going to be the one that gets in the way. Not God. He's not hiding from me. It's going to be something that wells up within me, that sin nature. And I think this is why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I've mentioned that verse many times because it is so quintessential to the Christian life. And we have to understand that crucifixion is painful. Crucifixion is a systematic suffocation. It takes time. It wasn't a quick way to die. It was actually intentionally designed to be painful and humiliating. It takes time. And the death of our self, our ego, our flesh takes time. I wonder, has, has yourself, has your ego, has your flesh undergone that process? Because I don't know about you, but myself My ego is resilient. It comes back. It's like a spiritual game of whack-a-mole. Have you ever played that at the arcade? The little mole pops up and you bop it on the head? That's like my ego. And then I think I'm good for a second. Nope, he's over here now. Pop him on the head. And it's like I need to be the mallet and let the Holy Spirit play because he's going to be a lot better at this than I am and just let him pop that mole when every time it pops back up. And this is the Christian life. Sounds great, doesn't it? Anybody want to sign up? Myself, my ego, it's resilient. It's tenacious. It's sneaky. It will hide for a little while and then pop up in the least opportune time. Right? Like Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) That's on the horizon. That's a good time for your ego to pop up. Make an idiot of yourself. But all of this, all of this, this process... And the self does get weaker, and it does 
lose influence in your life as you become more and more and more in tune with the Holy Spirit and you sense the Holy Spirit and you feel his, his presence and you feel his voice directing you in which place to go and what to do and you learn to keep in step with the Spirit and it takes time. Crucifixion takes time. This process of dying to ourselves that he might increase takes time and it takes massive amounts of grace daily, forever. But that's also the good news. This grace that we talked about that doesn't free us to live for us, but frees us from our slavery to ourselves, this grace is abundant. It cannot be exhausted. And I was reminded this week of an old hymn. I, I love the words to the hymn. I've never really liked the song itself, so I'm not, we're not going to sing it, but I'm going to read it to you because it's a, such a beautiful poem. It's the poem or the song, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You cannot run out of grace. His grace is there for you. Whatever you're going through, whatever loss you are feeling, whatever challenge you are facing, He wants you to come to Him for grace. Grace that will be sufficient in the moment. Mercy that will be new every morning and form-fitted to the day. And so as we close this time, as we close this series, I want to encourage you to respond. I want to encourage you to get up out of your seat if you need to come to an altar and to kneel and pray and receive grace for whatever it is that you need. If you want someone to pray with you, go to the two far outside aisles. Myself, one of our pastors, one of our LBA members or prayer team members can come and can meet you there. If you want to pray alone and just have a quiet moment at the front of the church, you can come to one of these two center altars and nobody will come and, and meet you there. If you want to write a prayer request, you can go over there, slips of paper, you can roll them up and that cross is filling up, which is a good thing. But if you want to intercede or if you have a, a need that's so close that you don't share it with anybody else, but you want to share it tangibly with God, you can do that. And we stop and we pray for those. I pray for those prayer requests when I walk through this sanctuary, praying over these seats, praying through these aisles. There's nothing wrong when you come to the altar. There's something right when you come to the altar. Come to the altar today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that it is so abundant that we cannot exhaust it. 
And we thank you, Lord, that, that you were crystal clear about what following you means. That there is a death to self that is involved. That unless a grain of wheat fall to the earth and die, it remains a single seed. But if it falls, it can bear fruit. It can bear a harvest. And a single grain of wheat can multiply many times over. And that's what we want, Lord. That's what we want in our lives. Is to multiply. To bear fruit for your kingdom. To see your kingdom expand in us and through us. To see... New believers coming up out of the waters of baptism that we invite or to, that we witness to, or that we served in some way. We want to see your kingdom expand in us and through us. So we lay ourselves down. And we ask you to have your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.